0: Welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order at any time, and there is always free shipping to the United States. That is secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. Um, I hope everyone has had a pretty great week. I hope everybody had a fantastic Halloween. We had trick or treat here in Columbus on Thursday. um, And given that it's Columbus, Ohio, it was 40 degrees and very, very windy. And it actually started snowing towards the end of the night. um, And I am somebody who loves the Christmas season, but I really don't want to see any snow until December. <laughs> but we did see probably less than 20, 20 trick-or-treaters this year um, while we were taking our daughters around. But I guess there was a silver lining to that because I think people were eager to get rid of their candy by the end of the night. So my kids were getting handfuls um, at each house, which really benefits me because... <laughs> Uh, I like to sneak a few pieces here and there when they're not looking. So this week, um, I actually started finally watching Castle Rock, and I'm not. This is going to be a spoiler free zone right here. I'm not giving away any major plot points. Um, I've caught up on all four episodes that are out at the moment, and I am enjoying it. And I'm pretty well. I'm pretty sure I'm enjoying it. Um, Lizzie Kaplan as Annie Wilkes is just. Fabulous, uh, she has the mannerisms, the walk. Um, she's very, very captivating as this character, and I'm also loving Tim Robbins as Pop Merrill. Um, I don't, I don't feel like Ace Merrill is as menacing as he felt in the books, but uh, the actor's doing a pretty good job. And so I'm caught up, and I just, I have no idea. Where they are going with this season. (laughs) I was a bit taken aback by the changing of some um, of King's canon, Um, but you know what? As he says, there are other worlds than these, and I am willing to keep my mind open and accept the fact that this could just be another King universe where Annie does end up in Castle Rock, uh, where the Marston house... um, once again, is its own character, but has a different purpose. And I think once the season is completely over, I may dedicate an episode of this podcast to just reviewing the entire season um, and just talk about what I thought. Um, maybe I'll see if I can get somebody on here to talk about it with me. But I really did love season one. And I think I'm just one of those fans that will absorb anything that King gives us. Um, however, I can get them in any platform. Even when they're terrible, I'll just complain about how they were terrible after the fact. So I also want to give a brief mention and tell you guys to check out uh, the Take 3 podcast, a movie podcast, this week because their Quick Take episode that came out on Friday is all about Stephen King. And it's a really fabulous episode. I had a great time listening to this at work on Friday. Um, and it really made my day fly by in my commute home. So it's the perfect time of year to listen to that episode. So please check out uh, the Take Three uh, movie podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into this week's chapter. Um, to recap, chapter 26. We got some small vignettes of what was going on around the country as the truth of Captain Trips got out. There was a lot of panic, a lot of murder, a lot of Americans fighting back against the army that's been trying to quarantine and lie about the super flu. Even soldiers were starting to go a wall if they weren't already dying from the super flu. So basically, the country is um, fucked. To put it mildly, and it took about three days for it to completely fall apart. So today in chapter twenty seven, we will travel back to New York City, where Larry Underwood has been staying for the past week or so after his life began to fall apart out west. When we last left Larry, um he got some really good news about a friend of his, Wayne Stuckey, depositing some money into his account. But then he found his mother um, incredibly ill from the superflu. Now, on June 27th, he is sitting on a bench in Central Park. Fifth Avenue is jammed with cars, all silent now because their owners have fled or died. And many shops in the city are smoking or completely destroyed from rioting. From where he is sitting, he can see the Central Park Zoo. Most of the animals are dead um, and probably not from the superflu, but from dehydration and starvation because the people who were meant to take care of them are gone or have died. There is, however, a monkey who is still alive. He was, uh, or she, was clever enough to um, avoid starvation, but Larry notices that this particular monkey does have the super flu and is barely hanging on. Along with the animals, Larry can hear someone shouting in the distance, and this is the monster shouter, as Larry calls him. And this man goes around, has been going around the city, just yelling, monsters are coming, monsters coming. The monster shouter is a tall man in his 60s. Um, and just a very quick side note, the, the monster shouter in the 1994 ABC miniseries was basketball legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> so that was kind of a fun little stunt casting there. Um, because yes, he's a very tall man. Um, the rest of the description doesn't really match, but that that fits. So Larry had heard him the night before. He had been sleeping in a suite at the Sherry Netherland, which is a luxury hotel near Central Park. And I went on their website um, while I was writing this episode, and it is a swanky looking place. And of course, it talks about the the uh, the elite. The you know who stay at this hotel. So clearly, I could never afford this place, um, and it makes me wonder if Larry could afford it, or if it's just kind of a free for all at this point. You know, nobody's there to man the desk. He's just taking a room for himself. So he slept there, but he slept with all of the lights on and the door triple locked. But he could still hear the monster, the monster shouter outside. And Larry had been convinced that this man was coming for him, seeking out. Seeking him out the way the creatures of his frequent bad dreams sometimes did. It says, Larry became convinced that the sweet, the sweet store, which he had triple locked, would burst inward and that the monster shouter would be there. Not a human being at all, but a gigantic troll thing with the head of a dog and saucer sized fly eyes and champing teeth. Our imaginations always seem to. Make things worse than they really are when we're scared. Because when Larry finally sees this man that morning, he was only a crazy old man wearing corduroy pants and Zoris and horn rimmed glasses with one bow taped. Larry tries to talk to him, but the man begins to scream about monsters in the streets and runs off. So Larry's opinion of him had swung from extreme terror to utter boredom and mild annoyance in the span of 12 hours. The Monster shadow is not the only person Larry has seen. There are still people in New York City, and you have to expect that there would be, um, given the population, despite how uh, the high percentage of casualties that Captain Trips has taken. And Larry has spoken to some of them. They all have stories about their relatives who are dead or dying. Tiffany's, the jewelry store, supposedly went up in flames, as did most, most of Fifth Avenue. And people are wondering who will clean up Who will collect the garbage? Should they stay in New York City? Some people don't seem to grasp the reality that the world that they know is over. No one is collecting the garbage and no one is going to clean this up. Their thoughts, like Larry's, are disjointed and uncertain. Some people want to leave but have heard that the army is guarding the places where they might do this. A young man, munching Fritos from a gigantic bag, told Larry conversationally that he was going to fulfill a lifelong ambition. He was going to Yankee Stadium, run around the outfield naked, and then masturbate on home plate. Chance of a lifetime man, he told Larry, winked with both eyes and then wandered off, eating Fritos. You know, a lot of people have ambition. (laughs) Maybe a bucket list of things they want to accomplish before they die. Um, but masturbating on the home plate of Yankee Stadium is not something I would ever expect to hear. <laughs> so uh, hats off to that guy. I hope he got to fulfill his dream. Um, but while Larry hadn't seen a lot of death in the streets, he did have one encounter at a comfort station on Traverse Number no. 1, which is a street and comfort station is kind of like a restroom. Um, He'd opened the door, and a grinning dead man with maggots crawling briskly hither and yon on his face had been seated inside, his hands settled on his bare thighs, his sunken eyes staring into Larry's own. A sickening, sweet smell bloated out at Larry, as if the man sitting there was a rancid bonbon, a sweet treat which, in all the confusion, had been left for the flies. I, I just had to read that, even though it's disgusting, but... How King manages to turn um, death and compare it to a bonbon is just, I would never, um, I like to write occasionally, but I would never be able to think up something like that. It was just so descriptive and repulsive, and um, it kind of reminded me of Starkey being obsessed with uh, the uh, the man's face in his bowl of pea soup, dying in his uh, dying In a bowl of soup, and this guy died on the toilet. Um, I can't think of a worse way to go, uh, but yeah, I'm sure that particular sight and smell will stay with Larry for a very long time. And it's not a pleasant sight to behold by any means. And Larry loses his breakfast right then and there. And now he's sitting alone in Central Park. And Larry can't help but think back to five years ago during the World Series. He realizes that during that period of time, um, he was at his most happiest. He had been in good physical health. His mind was resting easy and not working against itself. This was just after um, he and Rudy split up. And Rudy was the friend that Larry went out west with. They traveled together, finding odd jobs here and there, hitchhiking their way to L.A. Larry so happened to lose $60 in a poker game. So Rudy lent him some money to tide him over. After arriving in LA, Larry got a job washing dishes. And about three weeks later, Rudy asked about the loan that he'd given Larry. And Rudy had met a guy who could help him get a job through an employment agency, but his fee was $25, which it just so happened to be the amount that Rudy had lent Larry. Larry, being Larry, insisted that he had already paid Rudy back. Sure, he supposed he could go ahead and give him the $25 as long as Rudy wasn't trying to collect on the same loan twice. Rudy was not buying the Larry Underwood bullshit. He just wanted the money he was owed. Larry made some snarky comment about never realizing that he needed a receipt from Rudy and from there escalated into a fight until Rudy finally had enough. and He said, that's you, Larry. That's you all over. That's how you are. I used to think I'd never learn my lesson, but I think I finally did. Fuck off, Larry. And Rudy left and never came back. Looking back on the incident now, Larry was pretty sure that Rudy had been right. They had been friends since grade school, and it seemed like Rudy was always helping Larry, giving him a nickel or a dime here and there when he needed it. And Larry figures figures that he had bummed about oh fifty to a hundred dollars off of Rudy over the years. Um and, but, when Rudy wanted his twenty five dollars, Larry tightened up his brain had simply said he had thirty dollars, giving away twenty five that only leaves five dollars, therefore, you already paid him back. I'm not sure just when, but you did. Let's have no more discussion of the matter, and no more there had been. Larry pretty much threw away a lifelong friendship over twenty five dollars. Whether he meant to or not, that's just how selfish he was. Um, He's so used to taking from people, as Alice, his mother, told him. But when someone needs him to give, not even as a favor, but with money owed, Larry cannot do it. He can't think of anyone but himself, and he loses the people he loves because of it. Even after Rudy left, Larry hadn't attempted to make any friends where he worked. Because in his mind, everyone around him was a moron a dipstick. Back when dipstick was probably a real insult. Um, Larry's the only one who matters. He's the only one who is going to make something of himself and nobody around him was worth befriending. So homesickness is starting to take over and Larry thought about moving back to New York, but then he met Yvonne. Yvonne is a topless dancer who lost her purse at a movie theater and Larry helped her search for it. And he's the one who found it about three rows away from where she had been sitting. Um, And here's another little insight into Larry's character. Larry, feeling like Captain America, told her he wished he could take her out for burgers or something to celebrate. Only he was really strapped for cash. Yvonne said she'd treat, and Larry, that great prince, had been pretty sure she would. So within two weeks, uh, he and Yvonne got pretty serious. Larry began to work at a bookstore, and he found himself singing with this mediocre band. Um, but he and Yvonne began living together. And it was a home, a place of his own. And he and Yvonne would have friends come and go. And he was pretty—he feeling pretty good about his life for once. And so they were together about 14 months, all of which, um, in his mind, are pretty great except the last six weeks when Larry feels like Yvonne has become kind of a bitch. Um, But he would go to work. He would go to Johnny McCall's house to write new songs or just play some oldies. And then he would go home where Yvonne cooked him dinner, real dinner, not those frozen meals, and they would watch the World Series. Fun fact, the World Series of 1985 was the St. Louis Cardinals and the Kansas City Royals. And I believe that the Kansas City Royals Royals actually won that series in seven games. Um, Just a bit of useless information there for you guys. It has seemed all right. It had seemed his. There hadn't been one single thing hassling his mind. Nothing had been so good since then. Nothing. That memory um, leads Larry to where he is now. Sitting on a bench in Central Park, crying in the sun. He's a bit disgusted with himself that he's crying in broad daylight, in public, but it occurred to him that he had the right to cry for the things he lost, that he had a right to be in shock, if that's what this was. Alice Underwood, his mom, had died three days before on June 24th. She had been in the hallway of the hospital, crammed with other bodies who were also busy dying. Larry's with her when she passes, um, and he thinks he'll go mad watching her die, surrounded by the stench of feces and urine. There's delirious people everywhere, choking, screams of the bereaved. There had been no final moment of recognition here. Um, Alice hadn't known who Larry was when she died, and Larry hadn't known what to do. I remember in the last chapter with him when he found his mom on the floor in her apartment sick. He hadn't known what to do after the hospital wouldn't pick up the phone. And the hospital itself is a madhouse. Sooner or later, um, Larry knows that his mom will be carried away like a sack of oats. And he didn't want to watch that. So Larry has to pin a deposit slip from her checkbook to her blouse with her name and address on it, as well as her age, just so they knew who she was before they took her away. And, and you know, in Chapter 26, um, last week's episode, they showed um, on the television in Boston, they showed those trucks uh, backing up to the uh, Boston Harbor and dumping bodies by the truckload onto a barge. And it just makes me so sad to think that um, Larry's mom probably went the same way. There's no burial. There's no respect for the dead. It's just hauling the bodies out because there's just so many of them. Larry leaves um, the hospital and he's crying and feeling like he had abandoned his mom. But there's chaos everywhere. There's sick people, crazy people. There's the army in the streets. And now he could sit there on his bench in Central Park, and he could grieve for his mother properly. He could grieve for a lot of things. um, His career, his mother's retirement that she would never get to enjoy, his memories of that time in L.A., watching the World Series with Yvonne, and he grieved for Rudy most of all. He wished he had paid Rudy his twenty-five dollars with a grin and a shrug, saving the six years that had been lost. After the chaos and bloodshed of the of the last chapter, this was, this was a nice moment here with Larry. How, in the midst of something like Captain Trips, the thing that the things that come to us, the things that we remember, like Larry's memory of Rudy, a friend that he had wronged and lost. Um, Yvonne, who would cook him dinner and be there to rub the back of his neck at night when they would just watch TV together. For Larry, that was a time when he knew he was the happiest, Um, not when his career began to take off, not when he had dozens upon dozens of so-called friends and money in the bank. Those are the things he missed the most, Rudy and watching the World Series. That was when his mind was at ease. So the monkey in Central Park Zoo finally dies and it's at that moment that Larry decides he can't sit on that park bench anymore. He begins to walk through the park towards the mall with a large bandshell. The monster shouter was no longer in earshot. And another quick side note here, the bandshell. Um, I don't know how many of you follow Mick Garris on Twitter. Mick Garris was the director of the 1994 miniseries um, for ABC. And he had posted a while ago that he was in Vancouver, and he was visiting Josh Boone on the set of The Stand for CBS All Access. And they took a picture, um, and in the background is a large shell. So I'm thinking that they were probably shooting the uh, Larry Underwood um, scene here with Rita, who would be played by Heather Graham. And it'd be kind of cool to get a Mick Garris cameo. It'd be kind of cool if Mick Garris was playing the monster shouter, to be honest with you. <laughs> but um, I guess we'll have to see. So I went off on a little side thing there. So I'm going to shift on back to Larry before I start talking about that uh, even longer. So anyway, so Larry comes to the band shell and he finds a woman sitting in it. And she's maybe 50 years old, but she's taking great pains to pair young. Um, I think 50 is still young, so whatever. Uh, but she's wearing expensive clothes, and she has a pill in one hand, and Larry notices that she takes it quickly, like she's eating a peanut. He greets her and notices four rings, including a wedding band. Of course, he tells her he's not dangerous, but given how much jewelry she's wearing, it's probably safer um, that she knows that uh, he's not there to rob her. <laughs> the woman introduces herself as Rita Blakemore. Larry observes that she wasn't as calm as she looked at the first glance. There was a little tick working on the side of her neck, and behind the lively intelligence in the blue eyes was the same dull shock that Larry had seen in his own eyes this morning as he shaved. Rita thought Larry was maybe the monster shouter, and she had almost hid when she heard him coming, but the two talk about their situation. They talk about the people they've come across. Larry tells her about uh, the young man who's going to Yankee Stadium to do his business there on home plate. Um, but most of the people are sick. Not all of them, but most. Rita's own doorman is still on duty. And he's healthy, so she tipped him $5 that morning. But she didn't know if that was because he was still on duty or because he was healthy. Rita has a gun in her handbag. And she tells Larry... um. This gun belonged to her husband. He died two years ago of a massive stroke. Harry Blakemore had been afraid of burglars, so he bought this gun. One Rita has probably never handled or shot before, and she asks Larry if guns really do kick and make a loud noise when they go off. Larry doesn't think that a gun that size would kick. It's a 32, but Rita's, <laughs> Rita decides to pull it out of her handbag and she fires it at a nearby tree. She's a pretty good shot for having never um, fired a handgun before, which makes Larry a little nervous, understandably. But Rita is pretty sure she would never be able to shoot a person with it. Eventually, there will be no one to shoot anyway. Rita had noticed that Larry had been eyeing her rings. Um, Apparently, her husband was into diamonds. They sold diamonds. So she's wearing quite a bit of them. She asks Larry if he wants one. Of course, Larry blushes and quickly says no, but Rita feels like if someone wanted her diamonds, she would give them up. They're only rocks, after all, and neither of them know what to do now. Rita takes some more pills, and when Larry asks her what they are, she replies, vitamin E, though they both know she's lying. This is just her way of basically saying, mind your own business. But Rita tells Larry that he's very pleasant to be with, and she likes him very much, especially since he's not crazy, and she asks Larry to take her to lunch. Larry says it would be his pleasure. They walk off together, and something about the smell of her sachet reminds him of his mother. Rita talks nonstop on their way out of Central Park. Later, Larry wouldn't be able to recall what she talked about. Um, other than having always dreamed about walking Fifth Avenue on the arm of a handsome young man, one young enough to be her son, but who wasn't. And later, um, while he couldn't recall what she talked about, he would recall the walk itself, Rita's beautiful smile, her light, cynical, casual chatter, and the whisper of her slacks. Larry takes her to a steakhouse where he cooks a meal of steak, french fries, and strawberry rhubarb pie. So New York City is basically a graveyard. People are still roaming around. Those who hadn't died yet of Captain Trips or who might be immune like Rita or Larry, um, they're there. But the animals at the Central Park Zoo have died. You know, is the army still around? Or are they still guarding the ins and outs of the city? It seems like um, Larry now has some kind of companion in Rita, Although the last paragraph there about what Larry would and would not remember about their walk to the steakhouse seems to indicate that it may not be a long-term thing. Rita has a pill habit, and she may seem serene on the outside, but she shows brief moments of definitely not being okay. That false glittering smile that she gives him when she tells him that the pills are vitamin E, the tick in her neck, what they may mean to one another has yet to be seen. Um, so will they try to leave New York City? Is Rita mentally stable or will she pull that gun on Larry? We just um, there's no way of knowing quite yet. But at least Larry is no longer alone. Unlike Fran Goldsmith, unfortunately, who is dealing with the death of her parents in a gun quit Maine And we'll visit her again next week in chapter 28, where we will also meet Harold Lauder, the younger brother of Fran's childhood friend, Amy, who was supposed to get married that summer, but that's probably not happening anymore. (laughs) So that does it for chapter 27. It was nice to get some insight into what's been happening with one of our characters, especially after a chapter like 26. We saw a lot of horrific things in that one, but none that really touched on our main characters at all. So now we're jumping into how they've been dealing with the aftermath of Captain Trips and what's been left to them. And I really like this chapter a lot. We get some of Larry's memories prior to his single Baby Can You Dig Your Man becoming a hit prior to the drug use and the debt. You know, Larry is still Larry. He's selfish, but he had been happy. And it was pretty sad. Um, how he mourned his mom. I cannot imagine watching a parent or a loved one dying just in the hallway of a hospital, no one there to help, um, death all around them. So he mourned his mom. But there was also something so simple, like a happy memory of watching the World Series with his girlfriend at the time, and his friend Rudy, who Larry knows that he will likely never see again, and he wishes he could change time and give his friend that $25. It's really depressing um, how hindsight is always twenty twenty. how it takes something like, um, you know, in Larry's case, the end of the world to make us realize that the things that had seemed so important are not important at all. The petty things, like $25, it's not worth losing friendships over. And it makes me wonder though, <clears throat> excuse me, it makes me wonder if Larry would have ever reached out to Rudy to apologize if Captain Trips had not happened. And I'm not sure he would have, Um, It seemed like before his mom's illness, Larry was set on returning to L.A., um, and he had gotten more money from Stucky to help him out. And Larry, being Larry, um, would have probably just gone back to L.A. and tried to record some more music and continued to mess up his life. But now the superflu has changed everything. So I cannot wait to see um, if and how Larry changes with it. And that is it for this episode, everybody. Uh, this is the 25th week of this podcast, and um, it's been a lot of fun doing this. And thank you to everybody who has been with me since the beginning or has joined in a bit later. Um, I'm glad you guys are continuing on this journey with me through The Stand. Um, we have 78 chapters of this book to get through, and we've gotten through 27 of them now. Um, and... You know, um, I sometimes think about what I'm going to do when this book is over. Um, obviously, it's we have over a year worth of material here to go through. Um, also, my reviews of the miniseries and the upcoming miniseries. Um, but I don't know. Um, I really enjoy doing these chapter reviews. And regardless of uh, where things go after this book is done, I am so thankful for all of my listeners. And if you are enjoying this podcast you can leave me a rating um, or review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or I think any platform where you listen to this podcast. And I really appreciate everybody who has already done so or has emailed me about the show. Um, You are all awesome. And I really appreciate every single email and rating. So uh, before I start to ramble off script and you guys are stuck here fast forwarding through that ramble, I'm just going to let you guys go. (laughs) And uh, M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week.